Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It's been a crazy week in the markets, and I think we've thrown out our playbook uh, in terms of having a couple of different topics to discuss. I think the focus will be um, what's happening in the markets right now, but also just uh, some broader implications, some more evergreen insights, hopefully. So we're not necessarily just focused on what's going on in the markets, but we're using that as impetus to discuss a range of topics that relate to that. So, Elliot, um, great to have you and Phil here. I want to start with you, Elliot. Uh, so just uh, lay it out for us and we'll take it from there. Great. Thanks, John. So, you know, we've obviously been asked by friends and family about what's going on. And I've been asked by some other, you know, colleagues, like, first off, like, why even pay attention? Um, and I want to answer that question directly because I think it's an important one. I think it's uh, so important to pay attention to extreme outlier situations in markets because you can learn a lot about like true first principles from these events. And there's a lot that I come to think about. Um, and it's scary the questions I'm being asked by friends and family because I think it really lacks like a good context. And one of the things that's really clouding objectivity as people approach a situation uh, is how right now this uh, Robin Hood versus the hedge fund situation has been cloaked in populism. And there couldn't be anything farther from the truth. Um, And it's scary because I do think, you know, I mean, obviously there are a couple hedge funds on the ropes right now. The situation's pretty tenuous for those specific hedge funds. But outside of that universe, I mean, there are some hedge funds doing just fine, some probably cleaning it up right now, and they're going to sit back quietly. And with GameStop having a market cap as we speak, upwards of uh, or flirting with $20 billion, uh, it had been higher earlier, there's going to be that much amount of money lost in this situation. uh, GameStop's going back to where it started. There is no one sitting on the other side of this curve willing to buy. Short squeezes are as old as time. As old as markets have existed, there have been short squeezes. Um, The Vanderbilt era featured several prominent short squeezes. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt himself, the Commodore, built his reputation uh, in some respects on like abstracting the stock market and understanding how you could position and corner people and use it strategically to take control of key assets. And it was a very different game back then. Like Typically, stocks traded at par value much like bonds today. So, you know, 100 was what a stock was worth and its yield was what you got. And he realized there was far more to it than that. Um, but, you know, even more recently, we've had short squeezes. There was a dry squeeze, uh, dry ships short squeeze a couple of years ago that saw the stock go up 1,500% in a very, very rapid amount of time. The one hallmark of all of these is on the other side, it goes exactly back to where it started. Why? Because who in their right mind wants to buy GameStop once it cracks at like a $15 billion valuation or at a $10 billion valuation or five or whatever, because the thing is literally, you know, not worth very much. I don't want to say worthless. It's got some value and it probably had more value than where it started this run at because there's reflexivity involved. The company could raise money and get itself a little in a little better shape. But one of the things that's really frustrating is you see these billionaires like Chamath piling on to the populist narrative. And it really disturbs me because, you know, it's retail people who are going to lose, who are going to be the big uh, losers here holding the bag when it all ends. All these people on Robinhood are saying buy and buy more and buy more. They're just ratcheting up their exposure. And there's going to be absolutely no one out there uh, that's left to hold a bag, that's left to take their shares and let them actually cash out for a, pro- for, for a profit. Effectively, what they're playing is the greater fool game or hot potato, right? They're passing around the hot potato 
And, you know, where it stops, no one knows, but, but the losses are going to be massive. Um, and then, you know, I want to talk about another thing because like, obviously there's, there's this angle, but there's also the angle of what the hell was Melvin Capital doing? Like, why were they this vulnerable? What sort of positioning do they have on? Melvin Capital is a long short strategy. They deploy somewhere between 200 to 400% uh, gross exposure, meaning for every dollar they actually have in investments, they have, you know, call it three to five dollars of ex- actual exposure in the market, and they should theoretically run with a net that's somewhere from like twenty to eighty percent, depending on market environments. Probably eighty percent is too high, maybe fifty percent. I'm just talking generally about how the typical long short, like highly levered strategy works, and what Melvin was doing, right? You know, in a lot of ways, like when they short a stock, their goal is not necessarily to have the stock they're short go down. Their goal is to find something they can buy that'll go up more than whatever they're shorting goes up. So in a sense, right, in this world, there are two kinds of shorts. One is a short that's for alpha, where you actually want to make money on the short side of things. The other is a short, which is what I'd call a funding short, where you're merely trying to get more leverage on the long side of your book. What you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize the amount of market risk you have which we also, you know, in industry parlance call beta risk. And, you know, in actuality, it's presented as this, you know, we don't take much market risk strategy. So, you know, we're better uh, than those long only guys who are taking market risk. And you might have to, you know, realize a drawdown if the economy goes lower, et cetera. Uh, But what they're truly doing, anytime you get rid of a risk, you're opening up another risk. And they then are opening up what's called basis risk. And basis risk is the relationship uh, between their long and shorts. And like, you know, that relationship, while they might think by and large they can make more money on the long side than they'd lose on their shorts going up, sometimes really crazy things can happen. And, you know, what really irks me here is um, you can't truly be stuck in GameStop. At a certain point, this thing's done enough volume. Uh, for like five days running, it's traded its entire shares outstate, outstanding anywhere from like five to eight times over. So even if the short interest is 150%, um, there's been plenty of shares to cover. At a certain point, they went from you know having a really bad position to making a choice to try to see it through and not you know exit their position, lick their wounds, and move on to the next thing. And that's just terrible risk management. And you know what? You know, there's no need to cloak this in populism. You know, a couple of hedge funds made really bad trades, and that's what it is at the end of the day. Um, but you know, it's been really frustrating seeing a lot of these narratives take hold that have nothing to do with what's actually happening here. Um, and I hope you know everyone. Like, if you want one real lesson out of this, the fact of the matter is the stock market's been a phenomenal wealth builder for retail investors. But the key has been spend less than you earn and save money, invest patiently and get rich slow. And there are like hundreds of great stories about that. And I hope that's where everyone ends up focusing on. But I you know, fear that's not the case uh, along the way. So with that, I'll end my rant, pass it on to Phil and uh, look forward to, to discussing this more. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping or I was reluctant to even address this because, I mean, my first reaction to all this has mostly been who cares and kind of boredom uh, at the surface because it's just so discouraging to me to watch it unfold. I mean, you're exactly right though, Elliot. I mean, there are important forces at play here that need to be understood and there's a lot of lessons to be learned, but you know, just the, the amount of absolute nonsense that's being bandied around. I mean, I was just reading some thread by a very prominent allocator who's ranting and raving about a whole bunch of stuff. He doesn't even understand the most basic mechanics of how short selling even works. I mean, it's stunning. The The former CEO of NASDAQ was on TV last night and my wife and kids were watching it and he didn't understand how short selling works. I mean, it's unbelievable how many complete and utter novice amateurs are risking real dollars in this thing and how many completely clueless people are out there just blowing opinions into the wind and feeling completely, you know, correct and righteous and having all of these very deep opinions that they're not qualified to hold. So, I mean, this is, I I mean, on the one level, I do find it fascinating because there's about 
19 of the major psychology of human misjudgment principles at play all at once here. And that is, of course, how you get such crazy things all happening at once is you have multiple factors all acting in the same direction at the same time. I mean, again, I didn't, short squeezes are certainly not new. Like you said, nothing interests me there. It's just a feature. Um, it's, it's not necessarily a bug. It just happens. Markets are prone to doing crazy things in both directions all the time. That's, that's certainly not new. I mean, I guess what is new, at least to a little bit of an extent, and I, I should know more market history about what the you know zeitgeist was at the time and in prior periods of of mania and speculation in areas where there were big problems like this that, that developed was, you know, was there this sense of just deep-seated anger and nihilism? Um, you know, you described it as a sense of populism, which is also true. And I, I have a feeling there probably is. I mean, that, you know, the anger of the crowds and, and uh, feeling wronged and that they're doing something that's avenging that wrong, that, that can't be new. So I can't point to a specific example, but I feel like there have to be at least some parallels out there. Um, I do find it, like you said, really, really discouraging to watch people that should absolutely know better go on TV, go on Twitter or whatever, and just egg it on. Uh, like this is some sort of, you know, WWE fake wrestling match. I mean, it's really just disgusting. I mean, that that's probably not to sound like, you know, the, the archetype of the old man shouting into the wind that I am vulnerable to from time to time, but it's just so wrong to see the casinofication of the markets played out like this because look uh, it's not about a moral preaching uh, you know speculation and gambling are wrong i mean look people are entitled to do whatever they want to do it may or may not be a good idea it usually doesn't end very well but i was literally telling a family member of mine who was asking me about all this on text i'm like look you know if you really have the gambling itch go gamble in a game that you at least understand you know, where you know what the casino's take rate is and and go, literally go to Vegas. Don't do this because the casinofication of this is just not going to end well. And I mean, we've been critical before of how Robinhood has used, you know, scratch off lottery tickets as their basic operating model and all the confetti that they blow and all the nonsense that they, and this is, you know, that coming home to roost. So um, I guess we really shouldn't be surprised, but I, I do find it, really disturbing to watch the casinofication of the capital markets just get worse and worse. Um, and it's very ironic because to the extent there's, you know, a populist narrative of this and the the little guy and the underdog and all that, they're their own worst enemy in this. And everything they're doing is making the problem worse, not better, not even just in the, in the short run, but especially over the medium term and the long run. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what you'd want to see happen if you really cared about that sort of thing. So I don't know if I can find any silver linings yet. I mean, I don't have any super specific policy directives that could be implemented overnight that would fix this sort of thing. I mean, it's sort of like all forms of other, you know, self-destructive behavior where unfortunately sometimes you just sort of have to let it play out. And uh, I'm not sure I see some better answer than that right now. What about you, John? Yeah, I mean it's it's a really tough to to weigh in here. I mean, first of all, I I think well, I speaking for myself, I have no interest uh, one way or the other in any of these, um, you know, GME or or AMC. Um and I think the same goes for you guys as well. Um so we're just kind of opining on on this situation. And um once you know, basically, once GME uh, GameStop got above any reasonable fair value in terms of its stock price, you were in danger territory. You know, it was just a matter of how it's going to play out, but you knew that it was going to play out badly. Um, you know, maybe at $4, you can make an intrinsic value case, maybe even at $10. But once you're at $200 to $400, it's just, you just, you don't know how it's going to blow up, but you know that there's going to be some really bad news. Um, I think, you know, where this populist angle gets some wind under its sails is just how this seems to be unraveling, you know, because 
I think one way that this could have basically ended was for um, the shorts to cover and for the longs to sell at you know these these prices so that basically the short interest goes down to zero and the shorts have to cover at a huge loss. Uh, what seems to have actually happened, if you look at the short interest, is it hasn't gone down. It may even have gone up. So that would suggest that the shorts don't plan on taking a loss here. They're actually potentially reloading uh, to make even more money from this. And then when you have brokerage firms like Robin Hood not actually allowing people to buy, but only to sell, you know, that's where I can see kind of um, this narrative coming in. And it's going to be a very strong uh, narrative. Now, I don't agree with this narrative because everybody who's in the market is just trying to make money, not make some point, or at least that's what I would hope they're trying to do. Um, you know, the market has never been kind of a, a moral place, if you will. Um, there are rules of engagement, but ultimately people invest to, to make money. Um, you know, to your point, Phil, this casinofication of the stock market, um, yeah, it's it's very, very unfortunate. It's a sign of our times. It's a sign of, you know, just the, how widespread social media has become. And um, but it's also a sign of just, um, you know, the fabric of society just isn't what it used to be when you have even Nancy Pelosi buying call options on specific stocks where she's going to be involved in legislation that's going to affect those companies. How's that? How's that right? So we're just, I feel like, unfortunately, we're way past the point of any kind of imputing any kind of morality into markets. Um, so I, I think the solution really is education. That's really the only solution, let's say, for the quote unquote small investor. Be educated. You know, people gave Robin Hood their money without really knowing or caring that Robin Hood was selling their order flow to hedge funds. That's where you got to just educate yourself on how these things work and say, I'm not going to have an account there because they don't have my best interests at heart. You take, let's say, an interactive brokers, they don't do that. Um, so basically, I feel like education is the answer here. Um, not that, not that. I, I have no hopes that that's actually going to happen, but I think, you know, everybody needs to be a little bit more introspective and ask themselves um, what they could have done differently. So back to you guys. Yeah, that's a good point, John, about education. I'd love to see that because I think whether it's this example or just basic financial literacy, it's been on the decline for a long time and it, it shows and, um, you know, not to say that the past was ever perfect, you know, the nostalgia furrow back in the good old days when, you know, men were men and that sort of stuff that doesn't really have a place in this argument. I don't think that's often just lazy thinking, but I, I do agree with a lot of your sentiments. And I think as a prescription, as an answer, that might be the only, the only possible one is to just try to teach foundational skills and basic numeracy um, about how this sort of thing works because, you know, we, we just leave so many people prepared to tackle these sorts of things. And then you give them really powerful tools, you know, why on earth, you know, average investors, small investors, whatever term you want to use, have access to options uh, on a platform like this is, is just kind of bizarre, right? I mean, and if they're going to have access to those sort of tools, you, you can't drive a car without a driver's license, but you know, you can do this. It just doesn't really make sense. So um, I think you're right that education is probably the one and only answer. It's just easier said than done. Yeah, I think that's a 
you know, it's the end all be all of this. Like people need to get educated. I think it's, you know, on the one hand, great that so many more uh, average people have taken an interest in the stock market. Um, you know, at, at a foundational level, it when you start having success in the stock market, it encourages you, it encourages you to think about the opportunity cost of a dollar you're spending. And so it incentivizes saving more, especially in the early stages of getting that interest. Um, but one of the problems is that when you start having a certain kind of success, that's, you know, I'd call it fleeting and, you know, spectacular, like some of these people are experiencing in GameStop and, you know, in general, some people are experiencing since having, you know, just gotten involved into the stock in the stock market in March, what great timing, right? You've never experienced anything harsh because you joined at the, at the worst of the worst, uh, in recent times. Um, the stock market's humbling. If you don't get things right, uh, if you don't position yourself right, I mean, just look, Melvin's one of the smartest hedge funds out there. They were printing money for, you know, I think seven years now. Uh, phenomenal track record, the envy of the industry in a lot of respects. You know, no matter how smart you are, if you don't pay attention to certain core principles, um, the market's going to humble you. Um, and, you know, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes than your own. But the fact that a lot of these people are out there on Reddit egging it on, and, you know, you have the chamats of the world egging it on, I, I mean, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's like, you should be like, take your victory, pocket it, and look for something smart to do with it. Don't, like, encourage people to buy more GameStop here. It's not a joke. Someone's going to buy GameStop here and end up selling it like $10 a share. You know, the consequences uh, for people's lives when they lose that kind of money and don't understand, like, add options as fuel to the fire, it's it, it's really scary. Um, and I got to share, like, the reason why I'm so fired up and passionate about this is my family. I mean, you know, my parents were, my, my mom's an immigrant uh, from Poland, was a political refugee. You know, my dad's the, the child of a Holocaust uh, survivor who never got his fur business going. They came from nothing to middle class and, you know, we, uh, I think, you know, felt a certain uh, hubris during the dot-com days because they, you know, my, my parents were attuned to the stock market earlier than other people and rode the bull. And the other side of it was, was not fun to experience. And it was humbling. And it, it really taught me a lot about life and not just the stock market. And so I felt the other side of it. And so I feel even more fired up, like, you know, trying to share... Uh, trying to help the people I know and, and and love today that that I've you know heard these questions about like what should I do should I get involved in GameStop and like this mystique about it um, you know it, it like hurts me in my gut so you know if I sound a little more fired up than usual that's where it's coming from because I've seen what happens if you get over your skis um, in 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 your approach to the market and I think that's the most dangerous thing it's the worst lesson uh, it, it really terrifies me. And, you know, there's a lot of good. I, I love these stories about the janitor that saved money their whole life and passes with, you know, an $8 million portfolio that no one in their family knew they even had. Because that's that's the real beauty of the stock market. It is democratic in that sense. It is like a populist dream in a lot of ways. And there are all these myths being passed around how hedge funds manipulate this and that. At the end of the day, right, Ben Graham's right. You know, if you're fundamentally right about something, the market... Uh, short-run uh, voting machine, long-run weighing machine. And you could look at like, you know, these people talking about shorts on a morality sense. Uh, I got responses about how Elon Musk, uh, you know, he has every right to be angry about shorts because they tried to take down his business. They did not try to take down his business. They expressed a view and got smoked for it. And you look at how Reed Hastings handled that very same situation about, you know, it's almost a decade ago uh, when shorts came into his hedge fund. He's like, you know, uh, when shorts came into Netflix stock, they didn't imperil his business. They didn't put his business at risk. He wrote them an honest letter. I think you're wrong, and this is why. And he buried his head, and he executed, and he's phenomenally sec- successful now because of it. You know, deliver, deliver. Be a good uh, operator when you're the CEO of a company. Stop worrying about this stuff. It's all junk. Sorry, yeah, that, I'm ranting that, again. <laughs> no, but look, that's what I mean about the the ignorance and the innumeracy is you get these arguments like, oh, they're trying to ruin this company. And it's like, you know, GameStop just is what it is. And 
And I, I, I've yet to ever see a company forced into bankruptcy because the market quotation on its equity declined. I mean, it's just nonsense to make that kind of argument, but that's the populist garbage that's being thrown around right now. And so on, on a somewhat different note, but related, I wanted to make one other point, which I just reiterated in my annual letter, which is this concept of securities first versus business first analysis. And, and that you know, can be useful as a way of taking the temperature of the market. Because obviously, as you sit here and you look at a macro perspective and say what's going on in the market, you know, you just really get to the point where the plural of anecdote becomes data. And we all know that's wrong. I mean, you look at all these one-off little things and it can only tell you so much. But I think it does stand out to me, at least right now, that this is one of the most securities-first markets I've seen in at least the last 10 or 15 years and, and probably going back further than that. And by and I should back up a step. By securities first, I mean that people are doing analysis and making decisions on the basis of what's happening with the security. So will the stock price go up or down? Is the stock price interesting? Is the bond or the option or whatever the security itself is, is that is that something that I want to do, participate in, what's happening to the price level versus business first investing, which is actually considering the business as an enterprise first, evaluating that, trying to understand that, and then looking only secondarily at the price of whatever security you might be interested in as a way to, to execute an, you know, an investment that you have some sort of opinion on. And so this gets back to something um, we were talking about a week or two ago, we got a question that came in online from Brandon O'Leary, if I have the name right, where he asked if I wasn't confusing uh, or mixing metaphors about first and second level thinking, Howard Marks' framework and the, the tie to the Keynesian beauty contest. And, and I had sort of referred to this overabundance of first level thinking and a tie to a Keynesian beauty contest sort of thing. And, and I guess to clarify, he's right. Um, there was a memo in 2015 where, in a narrow sense, Marx was tying uh, a Keynesian beauty contest whereby you're trying to judge not who the best-looking person is in the beauty contest, but who the other judges are going to pick as the best-looking person. And, and so it's kind of the second derivative effect. And he was tying that back to second-level thinking. My point, and, and actually he goes on then to kind of make the point I was trying to make and just wasn't articulate enough to do a couple of weeks ago, was that that's really just about short-term trading, right? And so a short-term trader who's got any level of staying power and skill is, of course, going to do it at a second level as opposed to a first level, right? And that's clearly what's happening now. And it, the problem, of course, is it gets down into second and third and fourth and fifth level thinking where it's just a circular reference that never ends because you're just trying to outguess the next person, right? You're not, you don't care what the business is worth. You don't care about any sort of measure of value and capital allocation in a functioning you know, society where money finds a decent purpose and is a productive, you know, has a productive purpose. It's really just about outguessing the guy next to you. Um, so that was the point I was trying to make back then. So we get into some semantics here. So yes, Brandon's correct that, you know, Howard Marks had a little bit different uh, point that he was trying to make with the Keynesian beauty contest and an uh, analogy and, and I kind of mixed metaphors there. So he's right about that. But I think it, the point still stands that it really just pertains to this very securities first kind of market, a very short-term trading kind of market where nobody cares about what's happening. It's all just about what's going to make prices go up and, and who's going to find this price attractive. Again, this is why people are just looking around and saying, well, if something has a short interest, I'm going to buy it because that's going to be the next trigger to make the stock go up. They don't even, a lot of these people probably couldn't even tell you what the business does. And so, um, you know, I think that's a, it's an unfortunate and dangerous kind of outcome, but that's the world we're in right now. Yeah, I think one interesting thing that's happening uh, relatedly is because of this environment being focused on securities. I mean, I've somewhat lamented that in the wake of the great financial crisis, uh, the market had, you know, correlations had been much tighter across all sectors and within sectors. And so there really wasn't much, like every stock, like the, the most apt way to explain why it moved on a given day or on a given month or even the year was what the market did. And so, you know, I mean, COVID actually really was the first catalyst, but we've really seen a whole lot of dispersion. 
And I think that's interesting and helpful because, you know, obviously as a stock picker, where I'm focused on, you know, not just owning the S&P, I'm focused on finding the best opportunities. I mean, great. It, it, it's awesome for us because it creates a really big opportunity set. It's the kind of opportunity set that, you know, we've obviously had chances along the way and have done fine with it. Um, but there's a whole lot more chance when you start having individual stocks move with the mind of their own. Obviously, the flip side of that is there is a, you know, pretty uh, strong increase in speculative behavior. And so, you know, like, like you pointed out, Phil, like people that are seeking price as opposed to, you know, understanding a business, that's, you know, there's always a degree of that in the market, but there's a lot of that right now. And it's not healthy and it's not constructive. Um, I have gone back and I've been reading this week Capital Account, which is what I think, you know, it's really hard to find a copy of it, um, but it's one of the best investing books I've, I've read. Capital Returns covers a lot of the themes, but they make an interesting point, the, the guys at Marathon, um, which is that, you know, and I, I think we've seen it play out over the last decade. One of the greatest inducements to invest are high equity values. Um, if equity values are not high, companies are often incentivized to repurchase their own shares or do other things that are not investment related, like dividend out their cash. Uh, but when stock prices are high, you have to invest to try to justify those high prices. And um, you know, you you can't just buy another competitor or whatever. You have to invest in your own business. And so, like when you think, you know, not not from a specific level, but a broader level in our economy, we've lacked like actual capital investment uh, growth for a long, long time. Um, and so, you know, when you think about where things could get somewhat reflexive is we finally have this like real inducement to invest. And that has very good effects, the good ripple effects for the economy, good ripple effects for jobs and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's one interesting uh, consequence of what's happening. Um, but, you know, that often like what happens is it gets stretched way too far um, and becomes quite uh, messy and scary. So like the marathon guys were warning about too much froth in the telecom companies as early as 1994. And they then invested like cumulatively, I think they said something like 5X their entire invested capital from that, that they had in 1994 over the next five years. And you know that's how it goes from something that has perhaps a sound basis to a bubble and, absolute, and things get absolutely crazy. Um, so you know where I'm going with this, I don't know how to like synthesize my thoughts, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Yeah, I don't know if I can kind of um, tie into that specifically, but I think, um, you know, basically the market has kind of become less of a free market over time in a lot of respects, I feel like, just because of what the Fed has done every time we've had a market downturn, um, what you're seeing on the, let's say, long-term bond side in the long-term bond market. I mean, some segments of this market are just really twisted at the moment. And um, and so a lot of investors haven't really learned that the market has downside, you know, that, um, that markets are cyclical, just like the economy is cyclical. And, uh, and so a lot of lessons have kind of not been learned just because of how the market has behaved um, because it's received a lot of uh, stimulation from from the Fed. And then the, you know, I feel like um, the regulators are really asleep at the switch. You know, when something happens like what we're seeing this week, you suddenly have um, Ted Cruz and AOC tweeting how this is not right. Uh, but ultimately, they're not doing anything that makes sense to actually help people going forward. Um, just, you know, why why wasn't there any regulation around selling order flow to hedge funds? You know, that's something that could have been uh, taken on, but, you know, there wasn't some huge public outcry about it. So it was kind of a waste of time for politicians because they wouldn't score any points. Uh, doing something that's so invisible, even though it would be hugely useful. And, um, you know, um, Phil, you talked about how Robinhood allows people to buy options. Not only do they allow it, as far as I understand, well, it, they the encourage design it. actually yeah. pushes them into options. 
Like that's your that, that and that, they yeah. they jigger with the disclosure so that when you when you buy something, you know, depending on which side of the trade you're on, it shows like maximum amount you could could gain, but then it doesn't show how much you could lose. It's like how much this the security would have to move to like get back to break even or something. It's the most disingenuous, disgusting disclosure you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, and I understand that, you know, the regulators can't necessarily be um, in step always with the newest innovations, but they got to start closing that gap and, uh, you know, not waiting for things like this week to suddenly jump on some populist bandwagon uh, to score political points. You know, if you had financial regulators that actually are doing their job, they'd be looking at apps, financial trading, stock trading apps, apps like Robinhood in a systematic way. And they'd be asking, you know, what is actually good for the customer? What do we need to do about this? But no, no one cares. And, uh, you know, I guess after this week and once this thing kind of um, quiets down, I'm really not expecting anything constructive to happen. Oh, I agree. And I think part of that, a big part of that stems with the fact that if you were to give every member of Congress just a basic financial literacy test, let alone about something, you know, relatively in the weeds about selling order flow, uh, they would fail miserably. I'd bet a lot of money on that. So, it, you know, it, it, the change isn't going to start with them. It's going to have to start somewhere else and be you know, spoon-fed to Congress in a way that they can digest and deal with it if there's ever going to be any regulatory change from the top down. And frankly, I mean, look, you know, I don't even know if I if I were the benevolent dictator of that world, what would I do and how would I go about doing it? I think it's a really thorny and difficult question, right? I mean, you don't want to over constrain people. And, and, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think it's really hard when people have the urge to speculate or gamble. I mean, that's a, you know, an ancient problem, right? And it's it's hard to get out of the way of people that want to do that. I mean, so look, I it's it's ironic that this is happening at the same time that we're legalizing sports betting. Um, you know, I, that was always in the shadows for so long and now it's it's largely come out of the shadows at least in the US, catching up with other parts of the world. And I think this had roots, you know, going back to last year when a lot of the sports, you know, didn't exist for a period of a few weeks or a few months, but the securities markets, the capital markets were still open and commissions went to zero and Robin Hood and others came out and that that's that form of gambling kind of took off. The seed was planted and this is the fruit that it's bearing. And it's, uh, it's frustrating to watch, but I don't, I don't have a single, you know, fail proof answer to, to fix it. Yeah, I think uh, the you know Robinhood and regulators in some ways are in a lose lose position because you know this is about populism, right? This is about you know uh, giving power to the to the many people versus the few billionaires. That's these are the terms that it's all cloaked in right now. Um, and so you know if Robinhood stops this behavior, it's like, well, whose side are they on? If they just turn a blind eye and you know, everyone knows there's going to be big losses on the other side. They're going to be blamed anyway, you know, and you, they made their own bed on that front. And so, you know, not that I have sympathy, I, I just have no solutions. Like, I don't, I don't really know what the answer is. Uh, I think it gets back to what John said earlier. It's, it's, it, it really does come down to education. Um, and, you know, one of the things I really like, like uh, Cash App kind of cloned Robinhood and did their own approach to it, but they gave... This really, it was, if I could use the word cute, cute little book describing the stock market and how to invest in the stock market um, and encouraged everyone to like read this 30 page. It was kind of like a half illustrated, half textbook, um, which is really, you know, a fair perspective on what it means to invest in the market and what markets are like. They didn't add in options, they didn't do any of this junk, and they just encouraged people to like, you know, maybe set an auto buy program for once a week to buy a few shares of your favorite stock sort of thing. And they offered fractional shares, which, you know, some people don't like, some people do like, but at least they approached it from a sense of like, let's let's tie education directly into this and not, you know, open ourselves to some of the really bad stuff that that could happen. 
Um, and yeah, you know, I do think it has something to do with uh, sports having closed because Dave Portnoy helped popularize this whole uh, like everyone should be investing. And you know, I, I do again. There's there's a good and bad to it. I do think people should be thinking about the stock market, how they can invest, how it could help them build wealth, build wealth. But it's not a game. It's not like sports betting. I'm an investor in sports betting. I mean, that's an interesting space in its own right. But like, you know, that behavior should not be brought to the stock market. Um, and if it is, you know, spend a put a very small portion of your total uh, wealth there, and you know, make sure you're in securities where you could. have a very clear sense of what your downside is. And you can't, you know, zero is your legitimate floor Um, because it's dangerous if it's not approached the right way. Um, And it's, uh, you know, I keep saying it, but it's, it's, it's scary and sad to see. Yeah, it is. And, And like I said earlier, I mean, I just keep coming back to the thought that, you know, you can't, predict when you can't predict how it's just a fool's errand to even try the the psychology rules but the math still matters and it's it's just like a forest fire or a virus or anything else like that because eventually it just kind of burns itself out and so um there's a lot of pain and destruction and nonsense along the way and it's unfortunate but i don't you know I, just like you could make all sorts of arguments about the best way to manage a forest fire um to prevent it or to you know prevent the next one or to fight it once it's once it's started it's you know they're a they're a feature of the of the ecosystem and you i don't think you can prevent them any more than you can prevent the wind from blowing so um at some point you just kind of have to deal with it and uh, and look I, that's not to say that i don't support i definitely support guardrails and regulation and, and common sense stuff um but i'm just you know thinking out loud in terms of broad brush stuff you could do to prevent, you know, harmful speculation. I think it's just too hard. I just, I don't know that you can do it. Right. It's human nature at the end of the day. Right. It's always been with us uh, since the South Sea bubble um, onwards. Uh, Yeah. I I think every investor just needs to understand that, you know, he or she is their own best friend. And, uh, First and foremost, it's about survival in the market, and no one's going to pay your bills if you lose all your money uh, because you want it to be part of some herd and do whatever the herd says. You're going to be on your own, you know, to pick up the pieces uh, when it's when it's all said and done. So you got to make sure that you know what you're doing and. And it's about survival. I do agree that, you know, investing in the stock market per se can be a great thing, a great thing, because unlike in a casino where you are going to lose the more you bet, stocks historically go up at a pretty good rate um, above inflation. And so, you know, if you just let that long-term compounding play out and have the attitude of getting rich slow versus getting rich quick, you are probably going to do fine. And, you know, understanding that you're buying pieces of actual real-life businesses and analyzing stocks in that way. I mean, we're back to the basics here, right? And it's pretty simple. I mean, people should just go back and read Warren Buffett's letters and and just study this. You know, this is not a casino. This is not something you do in lieu of sports betting or going to Vegas. This is saving money for your retirement or for whatever other financial goals you have. But it's serious stuff. And so I think people just need to, you know, have find their fun elsewhere. You know, you walk into a casino, you're doing blackjack, but you're not betting your life savings. You're betting 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, you know. Um, Here, people are actually betting the money that they cannot afford to lose. And that's that's a big problem. And by the way, I think there is an angle to have fun along the way in investing. And it was taught to us by Phil Fisher, right? You don't have to go out there and find the smartest thing to buy. You could stick to what you know, to products you really like, and use a framework that like, at least 
tries to triangulate value, at least think about what something's worth and whether it's reasonably fair and reasonably, you know, likely to at least not get you smoked over a few years if you're a retail investor who's just approaching the market from a position of, you know, not not knowing the toolkit of a professional. Um, so there there are approaches you could take that I think, you know, it's it's quite fun. Um, there are things like, you know, give a couple shares of Disney to a kid. Um, not saying that everyone should go do that, not saying that as an endorsement of Disney the stock, but it's something that's fun where like the harm in it, uh, you know, what, what's the worst that could happen if you buy two shares for your kid? Um, you'll lose $300, right? Something like that. I'm probably, sorry, 350 or whatever. Um, but it's fun and it shows that it could be personal. It could be related to what you enjoy and take pride in. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be like this super serious place where everything's like, you know, um, not, not supposed to be treated with any, any, uh, lightheartedness. So, you know, there's, there's an angle there. And I think, you know, a lot of people do, would do well reading like Phil Fisher, Peter Lynch and understanding how accessible the stock market could be if you approach it in the right, right way. Yeah, I totally agree. I just keep coming back to, I think John was, was getting to this. I mean, the, the quote, the, the soundbite that keeps jumping into my head is is from Ben Graham, and it's that the investor's chief problem or even his own worst enemy is likely to be himself. And so I'm totally with you that, you know, this, I obviously think it's fascinating, endlessly fascinating. Um, and I think a lot of people feel the same, but, you know, it just is hard for a lot of people and certainly myself included to get out of my own way sometimes. And so if you don't devote some serious effort and attention to it. What are you even trying to do? Because like you said, John, I mean, you can go bet on, on uh, you know, a sports game or go play blackjack at a casino. And it's most people, I mean, look, addiction is a real problem, but most people aren't going to do that with the kinds of money that's going to involve their house or their livelihood or whatever. I mean, they've learned to kind of compartmentalize that. And that's why I think the casinofication of markets is so dangerous was because there's real real money at risk here for people. And they, you know, we already have a retirement crisis, at least in the U.S., for a huge chunk of the population. And gambling with, with corporate securities is not a way to solve that. That is almost guaranteed to make it far worse. So um, I'm pretty wary of anything that, you know, gets out of a savings mentality into a trading or speculation mentality. And, you know, the irony of this whole thing being so deep is that we've gotten to this point where, you know, we have free trading with without a lot of online commissions, but you still certainly have psychological commissions and you definitely still have taxes. And, you know, the mistakes are, are still every bit as painful as they ever were. And at the same time, you have, you know, unlimited ability basically to capture all of that in a much friendlier long-term way with index funds, which have, you know, gone from nothing in prior decades and generations to now a very significant part of the market. And yet here we are going back into some, you know, retrograde behavior on the, the date trading side of things. So it's just really bizarre. I mean, bizarre is really the word that I keep coming back to on this whole thing. It's just bizarre. And I think there's one really simple rule that everyone could set for themselves that I think would basically solve a lot of this. And that would be something around the turnover that you allow for yourself in your portfolio. I think this huge turnover, the day trading, the short-term trading, that is such a huge part of this problem. If, if, if you want to just kind of really lower your chance of losing a ton of money, just say, whatever I decide to buy, I'm not even going to think about selling for a, at least a couple of years. And look out and try to buy, you know, quality businesses, as Elliot said, companies where you know the product, you know what you're buying, and then just sit on it. You know, that I think that would go a long way for a big segment of the market. No, it'd go a very long way, but it requires patience and discipline. And that's not fun. It's not entertainment, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what that's the problem, right? Is we're using this as an outlet for entertainment and and tawdry, you know, reality television style entertainment. And it's, you know, what you just described is of course correct and the right way to go about it. And it just doesn't fit with the the zeitgeist of just you know, blatant, raw entertainment. And that's apparently what 
you know, combined with a dose of anger and populism and nihilism thrown in on top for this toxic <laughs> brew, that seems to be what people are more interested in. But I do think it's such a good point because like when you think about Robin Hood, to me, their fatal flaw is they took away all friction to actually making decisions in the market. You know, if it costs you 10 bucks, you know, to get in and 10 bucks to get out, there's $20 of friction that you had to at least think, you know, if I'm going to put money at risk, I have to make that back first before I even make a dollar. So like maybe I should think twice about this. Um, and going to zero commissions means you could just throw money around at your whims. And so, you know, that getting rid of that friction is not necessarily a good thing. Um, uh, there's a Munger quote about like the notion that like uh, liquidity um, enhances capital markets is largely twaddle. And I think what he was really referencing was that, you know, at a certain point, liquidity is helpful, but they're diminishing returns. And then you could cross a certain line where it's actually the opposite. And personally, I'll tell you my secret is that I've used a soft target of 20% annualized turnover. And I've like somewhat changed the language I've used around it. I once called it an actual target, um, more like a ceiling than a target. Not that I'd purposely transact more to try to reach it, but that, you know, once I hit 20% on a year, I'm like, let's stop making any moves and, you know, think about it next year. But I now call it a soft target. And to me, it means two things, 20% turnover. You know, if I have an average position size of about 5%, it means I'm going to hold my positions on average for five years with 20% turnover. So I'm making decisions on a time frame that's consistent with my turnover target, right? And I'm thinking about like, I'm going to buy this thing and I'm not going to touch it for five years. And that means I have a hurdle uh, to actually get myself to action. And the second thing is it really means I only need five ideas per year. I don't need five ideas a day. I don't need to throw around like, you know, ideas as if they're stuck in the wind. I have to do my work and each year I have to make about five, well, let's call it 10 decisions because I typically have to sell something to buy something, but no more than 10 decisions. And decision fatigue is real. So like, you know, the fewer decisions, the better off you are. And it avoids this spiral where bad decisions beget bad decisions. If you make too many bad decisions one after another, you could risk in poker terms going on tilt and making really bad ones. So, you know, creating friction and having a burden for action, I think is really, really helpful. And I think it's one of the best things that retail investors could do out there. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it's, it's, I've thought a lot about the role that zero commissions play in this whole thing. And of course, you're right that it's removed a friction and it's removed a reason for people to pause and think twice. Uh, but, you know, even if you look back in, you know, 50, 100 years ago, l longer, when commissions were really high and really painful and material and transaction transa transactions were really hard to do. I mean, you know, forget about pulling out your phone. You had to go down to a brokerage house in a city and fill out a written ticket. And then there was a huge lag to actually execute the trade and the back office was a mess and, you know, physical certificates and all this kind of stuff. And that never stopped speculation either. You know, we had plenty of crazy bubbles and asinine herd psychology effects taking place in in those environments. So I don't know if you can, if it's fair to pin too much of the blame on on commission setting to zero. And you know, as as much of a critic as I am of Robinhood, it's more about the way they structure things under this faux populism nonsense. Like we're here for the little guy, when what you're really there for is to take advantage of the little guy and set up, you know, all sorts of psychological tricks to take advantage of the small guy. But it really isn't their fault, or it has nothing to do with them. The commissions went to zero. They're selling order flow data just like the the big brokers are, and that's been a trend that's been going for decades now, right? I mean, there was no stopping retail trading commissions from going to zero, whether or not Robinhood or any other individual broker dealer ever existed. So, I, I do, you know, as critical as I am of some of those bad actors. And look, by the way, I I totally agree with you. I mean, obviously. If you're going to be reasonable in this regard, you need to find ways to to limit yourself and to find ways to stop yourself from being your own worst enemy. But that's so far beyond the capability of the crowds in an environment like this that it's just impractical. So what what could you do with some of the broker dealers to limit this kind of behavior? I mean, like I said, I think you know it gets really difficult to be proscriptive and say you know you should ban confetti emojis from raining down when you make a trade on an app because you know you're never going to think of every possible 
game that they're going to play to encourage that kind of behavior. It's just going to be a whack-a-mole kind of problem. But yeah, I think some basic common sense rules about disclosure and risk and the risk of real loss and, you know, getting back to more of an educational mindset, like John said, as opposed to just a a casino mindset would be a big step in the right direction. Yeah, that's totally fair. Because I mean, the flip side of what I said is, you know, before when commissions were like $9.99 even, in and out, if you had $20, you couldn't invest. At least now in the Robinhood world, you could start with $20 yeah. and try to add that little bit, you know, every every chance you can. And so that truly does democratize investing. Uh, what I'd argue is the average person should try to put up like, and it's very much what you just said. Like people could build their own frictions now that there's none from commissions itself. Um, but commissions were that kind of like hurdle to action in some cases, but you're totally right. I, I but definitely. if people were going to be disciplined and thoughtful enough to try to build their own frictions, to short circuit their own psychological failings, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's very true. We wouldn't need to go there. So that would you know, be great to live in that world, but I don't think that's realistic. So One can dream. <laughs> One can dream for sure. And yeah, I mean, look, the other thing I find really ironic about this whole thing that we haven't really touched on is how the short side is being so demonized by this whole thing. And look, I think I've talked about this on here plenty, but if anyone hasn't heard it, I mean, I used to sell things short all the time. And my former, at my former firm, you know, we had a short only fund for a number of years. And, you know, I, I sort of made my way shorting the financial bubble of 2006, seven, eight, um, when I was brand new to the industry as it, as it crested in 2007. That just happened to be by blind luck when I joined this industry as a full-time professional investor. And, and by blind luck, I was assigned to look at some of this stuff by my bosses. And, and I happened to figure it out with good timing. It had nothing, there wasn't much more to it than that. And so I'm well aware of the beauty and power of short selling. And by the way, you know, the short side has been enormously valuable and powerful in uncovering all sorts of corporate malfeasance and fraud that has done real harm to the little guy, both as investors and as consumers and as citizens and taxpayers. So the short side should be commended for that. Now, you know, does that necessarily apply to like a levered long short strategy? You know, not so much, but it's very bizarre that the short side is generally held out as like, you know, the champion of the capital markets and the and the bad actor on one side and is now being held out as like the institution like we're going to stick it to the man by ruining these short sellers like what <laughs> what what planet do we live on like short selling is so hard and so miserable and acts as a check and a balance on capital markets if you really cared about sticking it to the man and making the markets more fair for the little guy you should be cheering on the short sellers not trying to ruin them Yep, short selling is the scapegoat, but it's really leverage that's you know the the true enemy of everyone in this situation. Yeah, right? that's true. Yeah. Um, and leverage is getting off easy in this in a lot of ways, but I think that's really where people should be focusing their attention. Like even the smartest people deploying leverage with incredible skill for a number of years can be run over by too much leverage. Yep. Yeah, it has nothing to do with it has nothing to do with intelligence or skill because it, it it becomes you know either so inherently dangerous at some mathematical limit or or the psychological factors just take over. I mean, right? I think you, in the money in the money game, Adam Smith's famous book, pseudonymous pseudonymously written. Uh, you know, I think the one of the more fascinating subplots of that, and it's it's consumed Buffett for years, was why do smart people do dumb things? Right? It has nothing to do with being dumb as a person. It's that a smart person does a dumb thing. A smart person does a thing they know they shouldn't do. And when you start enabling leverage, it enables smart people, well-intentioned people to do dumb things. And it's just crazy, but that's that's how the world works. I mean, there's just no denying that that's how reality exists. Yeah, and I think when it comes to turnover, you're also not enabling turnover, but you're encouraging it um, just the way these apps work. I mean, if you're looking at an app in your portfolio every day and maybe all day or several times a day, you're just more likely to want to transact than if you're getting, if you're looking at your portfolio once a month when you get your monthly statement. 
And there have been studies around this. I think basically the the less you look at your portfolio, the less you're going to transact. Uh, makes total sense, obviously. Uh, but that so a lot of the struggles that we're seeing people have in the stock market, they're struggles that people are having generally with with social media and with addiction to apps, to notifications, to instant gratification. That's, you know, it's basically, um, I, I think, has just to do with the times we live in. Um, I think, I feel like everybody would be better off not having any apps on their phone that have anything to do with their portfolio, but actually having to log into a website um, and check it there and hopefully do that only once a month or even less frequently. Yeah, I agree. The, the less the less you you know get the dopamine hit, the better off you're going to be in, in almost all regards. That's, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, there's that paper from Ben Artsy and Thaler, uh, myopic loss aversion, and they trace the equity risk premium directly to how frequently people check their portfolios. Um, and it's a phenomenal paper, really interesting behavioral study. And, uh, you know, I think there's some truth to that. Um, price tries to induce you into action. Um, that's what it does. But if you just focus on the business, you know, and check price a lot less frequently, you become a little more numb to how it's going. That said, I am guilty as charged. I check a little too often at times, though. I feel part of my job, part of my responsibility is to be aware of what's happening. Um, but in an ideal world, I would certainly uh, encourage myself to check less frequently. Well, great, guys. Uh, thanks for the discussion. Um, I'm not sure we solved anything, but I think the perspectives are valuable and um Hopefully, uh, all of our listeners found this uh, of use as well. Thank you all. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.